said, but I got to tell you, when we brought you in that next day after the special aired and we asked you to do 11 shows and you walked out of the room and Ted Harbert turned to me and said, there's no friggin' way he's going to be able to deliver 11 shows. I said, you know, Bob, it's really funny. I walked out of that room with my agent and turned to him and said, how the hell am I going to deliver 11 shows? <laughs> and we both had a huge laugh. And the fact of the matter was, um, stuff started pouring in after the special. Welcome to America, This Is You. It's a podcast about all things America's Funniest Home Videos, also known as AFB. Can you believe the clip show has been around for 30 years? From the mind of Vindabona, hosted by greats like Bob Saget, Tom Bergeron, and Alfonso Ribeiro, and totally made up of videos from you. Have you ever wondered who watches all those videos? Who picks the winners? Where did AFE even come from anyway? How does the show continue to thrive in the digital age? We'll talk about all of that and more in this five-part podcast series we've created with SiriusXM. And who the heck am I? Well, I'm Brittany High. I work at AFE and I am a longtime, big-time fan. Like every other kid in the 90s, I watched America's Funniest Home Videos. But unlike the other kids, I never stopped watching. And now I work here. And they let me make this podcast. So, here I am with the Vin DeBona. I'm uh, Vin DeBona, executive producer of America's Funniest Home Videos. Calling Vin a big deal is putting it lightly. This is the head of a company that was built over the course of 40 years. He's seen struggle, success, and everything in between. The thing is, he didn't always want to make television. When he was 15 years old, he had different ambitions. And I, I was a uh, balladeer, a crooner, and I was doing ballads, and I recorded my first record in Nashville at the Owen Bradley Studios, which was the place to record in Nashville. Connie Francis, the Jordanaires, the Nita Kerr Singers, Floyd Kramer, Brenda Lee, Patsy Cline, Roy Orbison, all recorded in that studio. And to this day, I can hear my studio sound and their studio sound, and it was exactly the same. I uh, went around town in all the New England towns and then sort of toured Baltimore and, and Pittsburgh and New York and did some TV. But then the Beatles broke. It was hard being a ballad singer when the Beatles broke. <laughs> but, it, but what happened was I would go to television stations to promote the record. And I got really interested in television. Then went to Emerson where he studied radio production then moved on to graduate school at UCLA. It was there that his interest in film and television really took off. He was so excited by the idea of producing television, he would practice directing cues in the bathroom mirror. And I practice fade up from black, cue sound, cue music, cue announcer. Eventually, after I did my first one, kind of the television bug bit me, and that was it. And I started making a name for myself doing... Lots of documentary shows. 
I also worked for a friend of mine, Jeff Goldstein, who was the director of Wheel of Fortune, and I used to be the stage manager that cued the board for the letters to change. So I was doing a lot of different stuff at the same time. I was working for Channel 2, doing uh, specials and documentaries for them. Uh, I was working six, seven days a week. And then my agent, Richard Brustein, found out that uh, there was a new show that Paramount was doing called Entertainment Tonight. And he asked me to interview for the show, and I did. But Vin's time with Entertainment Tonight was short-lived. I had an interesting issue with the executive producer, and I was fired. And it was the first time I've ever been fired in my life. Many of us have been fired, and most of us take it pretty hard. But Vin wasn't exactly phased. He was already moving on to his next project. My first wife, Gina was watching CBS News, and she saw at the end of the newscast this crazy little creature that was from Australia. It was the Australian frilled lizard. The Australian frilled lizard is this lizard that runs on its hind legs. It's really goofy, and when it sees someone who might prey on it, it has this sort of Queen Anne collar that pops out, and it sort of startles, you know, its, its predator. And for some reason... The Japanese population had fallen in love with this critter, and they were importing, and these little suckers were running all over Tokyo. And that's what the story was about. And so I looked at that and said, this would make a great show. It basically was a a game show about animals that this critter had come from. I was able to get a tape of the show. You know, it was basically Wild Kingdom meets Hollywood Squares. So I pitched the show. 136 times. Oh, really? (laughs) You heard correctly, 136 times. And this wasn't even AFE yet. I went back to some people three or four times, and they'd say, you know, I I really like that Japanese show, but it's Japanese. I said, well, you don't understand. So I brought it to my first boss from Westinghouse, and he bought it sight unseen. And I did two pilots. And they both aired, and then we wound up doing three years of that show. The show was called Animal Crackups. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hello, and welcome to Animal Crackups, where animals hop and they skip and they jump and they do a lot of things that kids are never allowed to do on the sofa. And to help us out, let's look. And I became fast friends, of course, with Tokyo Broadcasting, being the first American producer to bring a Japanese show to America and turn it into a hit. And at the end of three years, all the footage had run out. Everything they'd shot was, was over, so there was no place else to go. Except that my friends from Tokyo Broadcasting brought me this video show that was really kind of, um, it was a variety show. They would do a comedy sketch, there would be a dance number, there'd be a music number, there'd be a talk segment, and then they'd show three home videos. Nobody had ever seen home videos before. The camcorder had just come out. And at the end of the show, they would say, well, of those three videos, what was your favorite? And the celebrities would say, I like the one with the little boy, blah, 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 blah. So they said, what do you think? To me, I said, well, Variety's pretty much dead in America. I think we should run all home videos. I think we should run a contest, and that's it. And so I put a tape together of some of the clips from their show and... Remember, I sold my first show on 136 pitches. Mm -hmm. I brought this tape to ABC, 
Hank Cohen was the junior executive at the time in the entertainment division, and the tape was 12 minutes long. Four minutes in, he turned to me and said, we're going to buy this show. And that was it. So Vin had a green light on the pilot, but now he needed videos to put in the pilot. And to get those videos, he had to put the word out. And to put the word out, he needed money. So I want $100,000 on top of the budget to go across the country and promote this show. I want to buy ads in TV Guide, which was a big magazine at the time. I got a five-minute segment on Good Morning America, and I went around to seven or eight TV stations around the country showing this Japanese tape of these, you know, these fails and fun stuff. I'll never forget it. The, the second day I got back from my New York trip to GMA, we got 31 tapes. Through the course of a month and a half, we amassed about 1,800 tapes to do a one-hour show, which was recorded in October. The pilot was in the works. Tapes were pouring in. What could go wrong? And it aired Thanksgiving weekend, 1989, and got the worst review I've ever gotten on any show in my life. Some guy from the L.A. Times said it was trash TV and it wasn't funny and these were civilians and who cares? And then the Sunday night of Thanksgiving weekend, the show aired, and there were blizzards on the East Coast, torrential rain on the West Coast, and everybody was watching TV. They tuned in, and people started calling each other in the first 50, you gotta watch, oh, look, ABC, blah, blah, blah. And it was a huge hit. It was the highest rated show in 12 years that they'd had on a Sunday night. Vin's formula clearly worked. But what was that formula exactly? Well, there were the videos, but there was also a host. I had always loved John Ritter, and I went after John Ritter to host the show. And at that point in John's career, he was really more interested in being an actor than a host. And I understood that. And so we we had this very collegial discussion, and we remained friends for a long time. But we had to move on. And Steve Pasquet, who was another executive producer on the show with me and helped me create the show, saw Bob Sagan on The Tonight Show. Because we were really trying to show America who they were in their funniest moments. And we realized, well, there's something here, but we can't do it the same way that the Japanese are doing it. We wanted something more and different than that. So we went to ABC. He liked Bob a lot. So we went to ABC and said, we want to use this guy Bob Saget from Full House. Some of the people at ABC didn't even know Bob Saget from Full House. But that was all about to change. All right. Well, let's start with you introducing yourself and how long you've been with the show. You can introduce me. I can't say my name. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) It's like like slating yourself when you're a beginning actor. This is Bob Saget, the original host of AFE. He was with the show for eight whole years. Make him happy, won't you? Bob Saget, how about it? All right, Bobby, here we are now. Thank you. Gosh, you're a wonderful audience. You really are. I'm not just kissing up. I'm really not. I swear, I'm, I'm slobbering all over you is what I'm doing because I need you to like me real bad because I have no act and I have no life and I have no future. I'm serious. My mom is Gumby, my dad is Pokemon. Bob Saget, the first host. Every 90s kid's TV dad. Bob started his career as a stand-up comedian, so he was quick on his feet. Interestingly, 
working with a stand-up comedian is very different than working with a host. A stand-up really lives on their last line, where a host will read pretty much anything that he or she likes and feels comfortable with and, and delivers it. But with a stand-up, it's like their life's on the line at the end of each joke. And sometimes Bob and I would, would come to disagreements on what was funny, but all in a sense of making a great show. So Bob and I had a great deal of respect for each other. Um, I'd been on this show Full House on ABC, and um, unbeknownst to me, uh, Vin Bona had put an ad in People magazine, and it was an ad asking people to send in their VHS tapes or any tapes they had of, you know, kids, weddings, people falling down, whatever. Uh, producer Steve Pasquet had seen me on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson showing some home videos and narrating them, and they said, this is our guy. And then they asked me if I wanted to host it, and I watched the 20-minute tape, and I think I laughed I mean, from start to finish. I couldn't believe it because it was the best of the best of pretty much ever, you know. It was the resin of the <laughs> finest crotch hits and uh, little kids falling down and people fainting at weddings. And I agreed to host it. During the Saget years, Saget was one of the key writers. I wrote it with uh, Todd Thick and Robert Arnott, and we wrote a couple hundred episodes. I think that's how that went. Um, and I decided to do the voiceovers. And then we do voiceover sessions with Bob, which were interminable. I was trying to copy a guy named Mel Blank, who was a genius, who was Bugs Bunny and Sylvester and Tweety Bird and Pepe Le Pew and it, unbelievable the things this man did. So my voices were like, look out! You know, it was just a bad version. It was like... The flower arrangements are fabulous. And I'm so glad I dieted to fit into this skirt. Guys on top of a diving board. Oh, look at me. I'm so handsome. And then he gets hit in the crotch. Oh, I meant Jerry Lewis. You know, you just do... Why am I the only guy singing at this wedding? Well, at least I get free food. No, I don't feel so good. I shouldn't have had that clam dip. It was whatever seemed appropriate to the clip. And I only had a certain amount of... My suitcase wasn't that full of voices, but they became characters on the show. And it took seven hours to record voiceovers back in the day before we, we had to find what the show was. So the first year was just me just trying to figure out what voiceovers worked and then it became like oh let's see how fast we can get this session done now I've got the long line and you got the short line and I'm gonna let go of it and you're gonna catch it with your teeth how about my foot he would in, in a five second voiceover he would get 15 words in I don't know how the hell he did it but he did and and basically he had about six voices he had this voice he had that voice he had that voice and he had the voice of a cat the voice of a dog that was it and I was always very self-critical, very hard on myself, and wanted to be funnier and felt like, but you, it's a clip show, Bob. Just give it up. And uh, then I, But I never gave up trying to be funny. But then I look at people, you know, years later that I really like, like Daniel Tosh and Joel McHale was doing Talk Soup and Rob Deerdick and all these people that are really good at the modernized, smarter, hipper version of something. You know, it's nice to get complimented because I got bashed a lot for my jokes. They would think, oh, there's it's puns, and it's like, puns are jokes, bro, you know? Groucho Marx, I was a fan, you know, it was a lot of puns. Um, 
And maybe because I was so young and doing them, but now they would call them dad jokes, but now people just like me on it. But it's like it takes a lot of years, and they had to have liked me because it was number one, you know. When it became number one, I was like, wow, this is Vin called me and said we're number one. And I said, is that P? And he went, no, I mean, we're number one. (laughs) Um, And now you can't, you still can't show that. You got to blur that. It's Sunday. There's a whole new night of laughs on ABC. First, Bob Saget hosts the all-new thoroughly refreshing America's Funniest Home Videos. But we hit, and this show still hits because it's just it's become an establishment. I mean, it's it's a staple of television now. It's been thirty years. That's crazy. Absolutely. That's crazy. Is it crazy, or? Is it that watching people fall down or get hit in the head with a pinata stick never goes out of style? I'm, of course, on the side of the show being crazy. Crazy fun! But it doesn't come without its challenges. Straighten up. Stop doing dumb jokes. Um, But it's hard to host a clip show at 7 o'clock at night and not go edgy or not go weird. If it got too weird, they didn't want that because that doesn't reach everybody. So you kind of have to be homogenous in a way. You have to really try to, to feed the right beast that entertains everyone. I asked Bob about one of his most memorable experiences on set. One day I was very frustrated, and I had a script, and they'd given me a lot of notes and said I couldn't say this, and I couldn't say this, and I couldn't say this. And it was just one day. I was just not fun. And I came in, and Vin was there, and I was half-joking, half-serious, and I was like, imagine, this is about America's Funniest Home Videos, the most innocuous, sweet show. But there was there were some clips I didn't approve of that I didn't like because I didn't want to see people really hurt. But I came into work one day, I think second season or something, and I said, <laughs> I said I'm so stupid. I was 31, 32. I said, it's going to be a bloodbath today. Oh, no. I was like, oh, my God, what are you talking about? You're hosting a video show, you cocky 32-year-old, overpaid jerk. But that's what happens if if you have success and you're 30 years old and it's like, you know, the odds of you being a totally together person and not have a go to your head, uh, they're pretty slim. It's unfortunate. Uh, and But I, I then tried to surround myself with smarter people and then to spend more time with my kids, and that kind of helped me out. And then by by the fourth season, we were just... We were cook. We had a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun doing it. Just when you're in a room and you're collaborating, you're coming up with a different, funny way to talk about something. It's pretty. It's pretty significant. So the crew at AFE weren't just cooking; they were growing. Soon, they had the highest-rated Sunday night show in history. So when the series started in 1990, because the pilot aired in 1989, we did 11 shows, and it was like we beat 60 minutes. Holy crap, we beat 60 Minutes. I remember Dan Rather was in, in Newport, Rhode Island, and my mom was there. And my mom said, my son is the producer of America's Funniest Home Videos. And one of the guys, it wasn't Rather, said, uh, oh, really? Because we had just beaten them that week. <laughs> but it was pretty amazing. And for the season finale, the $100,000 winner was a baseball player who in the outfield jumped for a fly ball, flipped over a low chain link fence, and his red underwear popped off. 
That was the finalist winner, and that show was a 40 share. 40 million people watched that show. 40 million people. For reference, that's a lot of people. And then that was off to the races. It was family time, and it still is. I mean, it's um, it's appointment television, which I didn't know. I mean, people don't DVR it. They watch it live, which is really unusual uh, these days. Uh, but, but it was really cool to meet people that came out, and there was a contest. And one guy, I said, what are you going to do with the money? And he said, we're going to buy our first house. And that just touched me. That was just like so sweet. And that's one of the things I loved about the show also is that it would just show really loving moments. It wasn't just fall down funny. And that the heart of the show, I think, is what made people feel like, oh, I can watch this with my kid. Until you would see a wedding clip and somebody would pass out, you know, the groom. Or, I mean, how many crotchets can you watch? It's, it's endless. Don't threaten me with a good time. I think America was more sensitive in 1989 than they certainly are now. But at that time, we felt we sort of had to cushion the laugh and give people permission to laugh. We did something that, frankly, I think was very smart. We went out and we bought the sound effect comedy cartoon library of Hanna-Barbera cartoons. We knew that these clips were in many ways a human cartoon and that we needed to add funny sound effects that subconsciously you remember as being an anvil hit to the head or Fred Flintstone's, you know, bongo feet. Something that allowed you as the audience to view these clips as maybe a human cartoon and you have permission to laugh with and at them. America's Funniest. I always want to say home videos because that was me. Um, but the, this show, America's Funniest Videos, uh, is the best of. It really is. So you're you're going to watch that show with your family. Uh, you know you're going to get laughs. And the one if you're not laughing for a while, you're going to end up laughing because it just it just catches up on you. I've worked with Vin for f- at least forty years, going back to Entertainment Tonight. He and I only really had one big fight in our lives, and that was just before the taping of the show. Vin did not think that the show was ready to be taped. He did not find the clips to be funny enough. And I said, you've seen them too much. You've seen them too often. You will see when we tape the show that they are still funny. And we had a big fight about it. I said, look, you hired me and you trust me. And I got to tell you, we're ready. And we went. During the dress rehearsal of the show, the camera people were laughing so hard in the dress rehearsal that they were screwing up the shots. I've got a lot more in store for you in the next couple weeks. We've got Michelle Nasraway. I'm the ambassador, if you will, to the network. Michelle started, I think it was Michelle's second job. She started as a PA, as a screener, and she moved up and up. And Michelle Nasseray is an executive producer now for the show, and she started out as an assistant 30 years ago. And so it's really interesting to watch that. And that's been finding the best in people and trying to get the best out of them. Editors? And all of a sudden, there's this horse fart that lasts 33 seconds. And of course, some of your favorite hosts. I thought it was a really easy gig and fun. (laughs) Like, I genuinely enjoyed it. You taught me how to have fun with it. I said to Vin, I'd love to do it. It would have to be different. 
you know, will this show be able to continue? Will the fans still enjoy the show? If you like this episode, subscribe and leave a rating and review. Share it with all of your friends. Share it with your enemies. We've got four more episodes coming your way, so stay tuned. America, This Is You is brought to you by AFB in partnership with SiriusXM. This episode is produced by producer Rob Schulte and me, mastered by the master masterer Jim Billido. And Andrew Gruss is our quote-unquote sound guy. We couldn't have made it without the help of Melissa Belunka, Michael Fiche, Sarah Essikoff, Sharon Arnett, Kelsey Albright, and So Choi. Thank you to the man who signs my paychecks, Vin DeBona, to my TV dad, Bob Saget, and to the bunny slippers wearing Steve Pasquet for sitting down with me and answering all of my questions.